the world we know is changing. I'm Moira Gunn, and welcome to Biotech Nation. Science journalist Tom Ireland tells us about a burgeoning field of science which is changing the fight to successfully treat antibiotic infections. His book is The Good Virus, The Amazing Story and Forgotten Promise of the Phage. Tom, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks for having me. Now, I have to start here. I would guess that the great majority of our listeners either never knew or forgot about what a phage is. That's P-H-A-G-E. What's a phage? So, yeah, phages are really just a type of virus that infect bacteria. So we think of uh, most viruses as things that make us ill or make our animals ill. But actually, the vast majority of viruses out there in the world are this type of virus, which kills bacteria. So a microbe that kills another microbe. Um, and while that might seem like a very obscure area of science, it's actually really important if you think of all of the bacteria out there in the world and on our bodies as well. Um, there's this population of viruses that are constantly killing and keeping those bacterial populations under control. So they're, so they're very important, but I would say very underappreciated and you know, not very well-known organisms. Now, also confusing is that when I first heard about this, they were called bacterio phages because they destroyed bacteria. They were after bacteria. And I was always confused. I might even have done better if it was a bacteriovirus, but we'll call it phages. That's what we'll do for the, the course of this interview. But how did they come to be known as bacteriophages? Yeah, so phage is a, a kind of more convenient, sh a shortened way of saying bacteriophage, which in Greek means bacteria eater. And they were given this name by this kind of quite obscure and eccentric scientist in the early 20th century called Felix Derrell. And I'm sure we'll come on to him because he was a, a, a massively important figure in, in, in the science of phages. But, you know, it was down to his personality, really, that he decided that these uh, these viruses should be named uh, with a name of his choice, whereas every other virus on the planet, <laughs> human, animal, uh, plant, virus, uh, are just known as viruses. So that's arguably added to this air of mystery that we, we have about phages, and this it gives them this additional layer of complexity, which I think doesn't help people get to know these, uh, these brilliant life forms. Now, here we are. It's in the 1910s. We don't have a lot of scientific technology. We certainly don't have the Internet, fast ways of communicating. And yet science was going on, and scientists had a difficult time accepting this. Tell us some more about Felix and tell us what he did and why it was, well, I guess, so controversial. Yeah, so in the 1910s, which was when phages were kind of discovered, uh, very little was known about viruses. They were very hard to kind of cultivate and study in a laboratory. People knew this was decades before the electron microscope allowed us to actually see one. So people knew that viruses existed, but they thought of them as just this invisible liquid-like infectious agent. Felix Durrell comes along at a time when microbiology is dominated by these huge characters like Louis Pasteur, Nobel Prize winning microbiologists who'd really started to change society. They taught people how to save their food and crops from spoiling. They started to actually fight back against infectious disease for the first time in, in civilization, really. 
So they, these were sort of titans of science. And Felix Durrell comes along and he says, I have discovered a microbe of a microbe. And not just that, I understand how these viruses work. And I think I can use my microbe to kill the bacteria that are causing infectious diseases. And the establishment, <laughs> microbiology establishment, just could not comprehend this guy had come along from nowhere. You know, he, he, he hadn't been to the prestigious medical schools. He was self-taught. He, there were rumors that he exaggerated his results. There was uh, rumors that he'd falsified his uh, qualifications. Um, and so really, for decades, there was all this scientific bickering about whether his theory was correct and and some microbiologists genuinely dedicated, you know, the rest of their careers to, to proving that he was wrong. Um, and it really got this, the whole field of phage science off to a start that it kind of never recovered from. And, and again, adds to this air of mystery and intrigue um, that's made them seem like a difficult thing to study for, for kind of generations to come. Now, we've finally all gotten used to the idea that our bodies are crawling with and in part are actually composed of trillions of bacteria, pounds of bacteria in our bodies. But you write that phages vastly outnumber bacteria in our bodies. Yeah, so it's kind of mind-boggling mind to think that at any one moment, there's thousands, probably millions of bacteria being kind of burst open by these viruses. They bind onto the bacteria they want to attack. They inject their genes into the bacteria and they cause the bacteria to kind of churn out copies of the virus until they burst. And so this is happening constantly and, and the viruses are incredibly effective at doing this. So for all of these billions of bacteria we have in our guts and in our lungs and on our skin, there's probably more more of these viruses um, all around them. And they play this really important role in modulating the different populations of bacteria. And there's even some really cool research at the moment that suggests that our intestines kind of actively recruit phages and move them around to different parts of the gut so that they can, you know, attack dangerous bacteria in some parts of the gut whilst keeping the populations of more friendly bacteria uh, safe, if you like. So uh, we're only just beginning to understand the different populations of phages in, in the body. Um, literally only the last you know decade or so, people have started to acknowledge the existence of all these viruses in and on us, which is pretty remarkable, really, given how long people have been studying bacteria for. Well, the thing that's so amazing to me is if, if these things will kill bacteria, and frankly, what you described, uh, how the virus will infect a cell, take it over, start producing lots of viruses and kill it. I mean, that sounds very familiar from HIV. It sounds very familiar from COVID. Mm. But in this case, in fact, this virus is going and killing bacteria. And when it comes to a bad bacteria, we would like it to do that. And yet after, I mean, he, we're talking about his early research in the 1910s and several decades of everyone squabbling, it was all suddenly abandoned. What happened? Yeah, so so when the idea was first mooted that we could use viruses to kill bacteria and the bacteria that are causing disease, this was decades before the first true antibiotics like penicillin were available. So although the establishment were kind of rejecting the theory, people were so desperate for something that would work against bacterial disease that really Felix Durrell was allowed to sell this idea 
to hospitals, to uh, ministries of health. And he was a, he was a very good salesman. And within a few years, this was being used quite widely. And, and throughout the 20s and 30s, bacteriophages were the leading way to, to treat bacterial diseases all across the world. But in the 1940s, penicillin came along. And penicillin was much more convenient. It was much more consistent. And if you're a doctor and you have the choice, you can take a pill off a shelf that you know treats all kinds of different bacteria. Or you can use a virus <laughs> that you have to keep in certain conditions in, you know, in the fridge. It may or may not work on that particular strain of bacteria. It may have died in the vial. You know, viruses were just much more difficult to use. Um, scientists still didn't quite understand how they worked. So they were just very temperamental. Penicillin came along and was, it really was a miracle drug um, and changed everything. The terrible thing was for bacteriophages, you know, this this wasn't the first antibiotic. People started making more and more antibiotics, different types. Um, you know, 40, 50 odd antibiotics were produced over the next few decades. And this really was the end for bacteriophages. They were just became seen as a kind of a wacky old fashioned way of doing things. And also the, these modern antibiotics, they came along with the idea of a clinical trial. And so people were suddenly starting to create quite um, detailed data about safety and toxicity and dose effect relationships. And people came to expect that from drugs. So when someone suggested using phages, it was kind of harking back to this old preclinical trial form of medicine where people just threw stuff into the body and hoped for the best. <laughs> so they very quickly got this reputation, not helped by all the scientific squabbling, that they were kind of inconsistent and a bit temperamental and a bit difficult to use and people don't understand them well enough. So by the 1950s, 60s, 70s, really, the, even the idea of using them had virtually been forgotten, in the West at least. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is science journalist Tom Ireland. You may have read his work in The Guardian, New Scientist, and BBC News. He's here today with The Good Virus, the amazing story and forgotten promise of the phage. Now let's take this from the perspective of the bacteria. Here's a bacteria. They all want to do their thing. They want to live and prosper and grow. And we know that the bacteria are subject to the antibiotics. In fact, they're mutating to avoid them. That's what we call antibiotic resistance. But at the same time, they're also trying to defend themselves against phages. Mm. Yeah, so it's fascinating. And, and obviously, as this problem of antibiotic resistance becomes more acute, so the interest grows in using phages to kill bacteria, you know, people start taking that idea more seriously again. We're now seeing uh, millions of people dying every year from drug-resistant infections. So that is bacterial infections that used to be quite easy to treat that are now untreatable. So there's this really renewed interest in using phages in medicine, um, which has obviously been forgotten about for most of the 20th century. What's really interesting is that a bacterial cell can develop resistance to an antibiotic. It can develop resistance to multiple antibiotics. It will also have some element of natural resistance to some phages. But you, it's very unlikely that if you attack 
uh, a bacteria that's causing disease with multiple antibiotics and multiple different types of phages that it's ever going to be able to survive that onslaught. It just can't spread itself that thinly. Um, so we're now seeing, um, I think the future of this kind of medicine is to use combinations of antibiotics and uh, cocktails of different phages, which just make the idea that uh, a bacteria could develop resistance to kind of on, on, on half a dozen different fronts, um, it just makes that extremely unlikely. Um, and there's some evidence that, you know, if you bombard bacteria with, with phages, then actually they concentrate all of their defenses on keeping the phages out, and then they become susceptible to the antibiotics again. So you're actually using phages to make the antibiotics more effective. In another twist in this story, you tell us that CRISPR is based on a bacterial defense system that evolved to protect bacteria from phages. Yeah, I suppose some of the book, I'm just trying to explain how how influential and important these viruses are. And I think most people, when they think of CRISPR, if they've heard of CRISPR, it's this kind of revolutionary uh, new type of genetic engineering, which makes genetic engineering very simple, very accurate, very fast. Most people think of that as a technology that's been developed by by biologists and by the biotech industry. And in some way, some way it is. But really what they have done is take something that bacteria had to evolve to destroy phages. It's a kind of natural programmable biological mo- molecule that searches for phage DNA and cuts it up. And what what the biotech industry has has done is kind of modified it in a very clever way, so it, we can use it to cut up any DNA we want. But this amazingly sophisticated biomolecule or set of biomolecules is a product of billions and billions of years of warfare between bacteria and phages, where as one develops a defense, the other's offense becomes more sophisticated, and then the defense has to become more sophisticated and it keeps going and going until this kind of in- intelligence emerges and we have this amazing gene editing technology within bacterial cells that helps them identify and destroy phage dna well i got to say i i started out this morning very calm and i feel like there's just warfare going on inside me yeah but absolutely i'm going to i have to use mind control to calm myself calm myself down here you should be glad we can't see it because it's uh, it's 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 a real mess out there <laughs> or in here inside oh in no here, in here oh, no. Yeah. well let's let's talk a little about what's going on today i mean i looked at clinicaltrials.gov showed me a number of clinical trials active globally and within the United States, there are 10 active, many recruiting now. They cover diseases like Crohn's, cystic fibrosis, diabetic foot ulcers, prosthetic joint infections, urinary tract infections. We're talking a whole panoply of conditions. And they are university, medical and research centers, the Mayo Clinic. What do we know about what they're doing? Yeah, so in the past few years, I'd say it's only just recently a few years maybe maybe three we've seen this real momentum shift um and that means we've got clinical trials underway now testing phages for a variety of different um diseases and disorders as you've mentioned now what's interesting is that people had tried to do this before and clinical trials with phages were were really not very successful and there's a number of reasons for that um 
firstly, traditionally in a clinical trial, what the regulator wants to see is that you know exactly what you're testing. And that's all very well with a with a, a pharmaceutical chemical. When you're using a live evolving uh, phage, it's very difficult because that might change over time. Um, also, you might be having to use slightly different phages for slightly different patients who have different strains of bacteria. And also, in terms of dose, you're injecting something that's going to replicate wildly inside the body. That's completely different to a drug which has a kind of half-life as it gets broken down by the body. Well, see, I'm not calm anymore again. I went up again. (laughs) (laughs) All of this is fine. They're trying to do clinical trials with it. Yeah, so the clinical trials traditionally have failed because of all these different things are just too difficult for a a regulatory system that's grown up around chemicals. Um, But in the last few years, we've really seen these specially designed clinical trials which adapt and are... um, recognize that for testing a phage in a clinical trial is very different to f- testing a pill. Um, and so you've got these new clinical trials, um, which are, are building upon a number of compassionate use cases as well, which you may have seen in the US uh, media and in Europe, where essentially someone who has an infection is really in a bad way and they're on their last legs as we say in the UK. I don't know if that's a US idiom as well. <laughs> we say they, they, they've, ex- they've exhausted all available proved treatments. That's what we say. Exactly, yeah. So all the antibiotics in the cupboard have, are not working. And at that point, regulators will say, okay, you can try an unlicensed treatment. And that's how most people have received phage therapy in the US t- to date in the last decade or so. And and that's not a clinical trial, but you can get a lot of data from those um, examples. And some of them have been amazingly successful, given that people were virtually, you know, at death's door, suddenly given a kind of improvised phage therapy treatment, and uh, have made amazing recoveries. So the clinical trials are building on on those kind of cases. I, I, I would say there's probably about a hundred now compassionate use cases, or or you know end of the road cases have been uh, have been seen in um, the US and Europe now, and that's really building a kind of um, a body of data that that um, means people don't don't think of this as a wacky old fashioned um, uh, medicine from the days before data. The thing we we also haven't discussed yet is the fact that in in the former Soviet Union, they've been using phages in medicine since the 1920s. And unlike us, they never stopped. So they have a whole body of data as well that we could use. Um, it's not the kind of data that we are used to working with in the West. Much of it's kind of anecdotal. Lots of it's in Russian. Lots of it's in Georgian. Um, but traditionally, people have tended to kind of write that off as, well, that's Soviet medicine. It's not for us. Again, now this momentum is building, taking this idea seriously again. The problem of antibiotic resistance is so serious. People are saying we really need to understand what the Georgians and Russians have been doing for the past 100 years and learn from them. Well, in today's globalized world, you can order anything online. You can order phages <laughs> online. And uh, you've got a number of really interesting stories about what people have done uh, all over the world, including the United States. Let's just 
take this one story and tell us about who is Betty Cutter and how does she relate to Dr. Randy Fish and the Race Street Irregulars? Yeah, so um, in the 1990s, um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, very few people had been, especially scientists, had been to Russia and Georgia uh, to see all of this amazing, amazing phage therapy that they were using for decades in this in the Soviet Union, um, Betty Cutter was part of an exchange trip between uh, Russian and American scientists as the Soviet Union fell apart, which tried to kind of re- repair relationships between those different scientific communities. She actually went to Moscow um, for for a, for a research placement. She was a she was a a very well-known phage scientist in the US at the time. She, she People kept talking about going to Tbilisi in Georgia, which is um, a, a country uh, to the south of Russia between Russia and Turkey. And we should say that's spelled T-B-I-L-I-S-I? Yes, Tbilisi. Amazing place that's kind of between uh, Europe and Russia and the Middle East. I've been speaking with science journalist Tom Ireland, the author of The Good Virus, the amazing story and forgotten promise of the phage. We'd been talking about the importance of Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, a nation formerly part of the Soviet Union. People kept talking about going to Tbilisi in Georgia, which was really a hotbed of phage therapy all through the 20th century. It was it was the kind of pharmacy of the Soviet Union supplying these phage medicines all across the Soviet Union, all throughout the Cold War, um, and even during the Second World War as well. Um, <clears throat> Betty Cutter kept hearing about Tbilisi in Georgia, and, and, and people in, in Russia were saying it was the most beautiful part of the former Soviet Union, and she'd re- she, she should really go on holiday there. So she went on, on holiday to, to Tbilisi, um, <clears throat> and someone there heard that she was a phage scientist, and said, oh, did you know we kind of brew phages by the ton and use them as medicines? And she had never really heard of this idea. She got taken to this institute called the Elavia, uh, Eliava Institute, um, which has, again, has been studying and making phage therapies for since the 1930s. And she found this kind of unbelievable history of phage therapy uh, and how people were being treated with phages um, in, in the former Soviet Union. Unfortunately, because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, this place was in complete state of disrepair. It was kind of at its lowest ebb. But Betty went back to the US and started to sow the seed of the idea that, hey, maybe we could take all of this expertise from the Georgians and the Russians, give them some funding, help them get their facilities back up and running uh, to their former glories, and maybe bring some Georgian and, and Russian scientists over to the U.S. and start treating people with drug infe- uh, drug-resistant infections in the U.S. Um, amazingly, there was a podiatrist called Randy Fish who um, had studied with Betty Cutter, and he was working with um, sort of homeless people in in Chicago that he used to call the that were known as the Race Street Irregulars, and they would come into his clinic with terrible um ulcers on their foot from you know a, an unhealthy lifestyle and a life a life of you know pounding pavement essentially and he was looking for a way to treat these terrible infections that people had in their in their feet 
um, which would often spread quickly up the leg and would result in amputations. He, he, he went to a conference, heard about Betty Cutter, reconnected with her, and he started using phages um, really before anyone else in the US um, on, on these um, very unfortunate patients he had in his clinic. Um, and, you know, the, the results were remarkable. He, he would, he would, again, there, there's so little data on, on how you actually administer this, what dose to use. He would ship these kind of phages over from Georgia that were available in pharmacies over there and just drip them into these open wounds on these, on these people's feet. Um, and yeah, he, he, I think in his words, he said it cleaned them right up. Um, and <laughs> you know, this was long before people started actually doing clinical trials, um, that, you know, it's slightly dubious whether the FDA were, were happy with what he was doing, um, given that these were kind of unlicensed medicines coming from abroad, but he's certainly got the backing of the FDA. Now he's, he's involved in the clinical trials that are aiming to understand and prove that these kind of treatments work. Now, to be clear, phages are not regulated right now in the U.S. No, uh, they're not regulated. They're not licensed for use. As I as I mentioned, there's these there's an increasing number of these compassionate use cases where um, a person's doctors uh, and local scientists may appeal to the FDA to allow the use of phages really because someone's run out of other options. That's one way of getting phage therapy. Um, other people may be able to enroll in, in, in trials of phage, phage therapy, but for the majority of people in the US and across the world, ridiculously, the most, <laughs> the most straightforward way of accessing phage therapy is to travel thousands of miles to Georgia, to Tbilisi, and go to one of their clinics. They've just started doing a kind of remote service, but this still would involve you sending a, a sample of your bacteria that's infecting you all the way to Tbilisi. They do some analysis on it and then send the appropriate phages out in the mail to you. And that can get stopped by your, your local uh, mail service or your national mail service. So hundreds, maybe thousands of people are going to Georgia every year. They have infections that essentially Western medicine can't treat. And this is their last option is to make the arduous journey to this, you know, very difficult to find country um, at the tip of the of the former Soviet Union. And there's some interesting potential uses for phages that aren't really necessarily to do with killing bacteria. So if you think about what a phage is, it's this kind of uh, sub-microscopic vessel for carrying a load and finding a particular cell and injecting that load into it. So for most phages, what they do is they find the bacteria they want to target, they bind onto it, and they inject their genes in, which makes the bacteria create copies of, of the virus. But what you can do is uh, change that load in the virus, so it's, say, an anti-cancer compound, and you change the the cell they're targeting, so they're not looking for bacteria, they're looking for tumor cells. All of a sudden, you have a very precise kind of nanoscopic vessel that can travel to the right part of the body, bind to the exactly the right type of cell, and then inject a certain payload into it. And that's not something that we have to create through technology again. That's something that exists naturally and is highly evolved 
um, to do that already. We just need to kind of adjust the payload and adjust the thing that it's looking for. Well, nanoscopic, it's the term of the day here. <laughs> I like that. It used to be microscopic, now it's nanoscopic. So that's great. It's all about the nanoscopic now. Yeah. All about that. Tom, such a pleasure. I hope you'll come back and see us again. Absolutely. I'd love to, yeah. My guest today is journalist Tom Ireland. His book is The Good Virus, The Amazing Story and Forgotten Promise of the Phage. It's published by W.W. Norton. Listen to more biotech podcasts at biotechnation.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Biotech Nation is a regular feature of the weekly public radio program, Tech Nation. Listen to the full show via podcast or on your local public radio station. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.